were to read tonight, Second Chronicles chapter 4, including the first verse of chapter 5, as we continue our studies in this book that in the Old Testament was the last book in, the, in their canon, telling the story of God's grace to these generations of the tribes of Israel. Tonight we come to chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Solomon made an altar of bronze, 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide and 10 cubits high. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim and 5 cubits high. And a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Under it were figures of gourds for ten cubits, compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was on them, and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a handbreadth, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like a flower of a lily. It held 3,000 baths. He also made 10 basins in which to watch and set five on the south side and five on the north side. In these, they were to rinse off what was used for the burnt offering and the sea was for the priest to wash in. And he made 10 golden lampstands as prescribed and set them in the temple, five on the south side and five on the north He also made ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the south and five on the north, and he made a hundred basins of gold. He made the court of the priests and the great court and doors for the court and overlaid their doors with bronze. And he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins. So Hiram finished the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of God. The two pillars, the bowls, the two capitals on top of the pillars, and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the top of the pillars. And the 400 pomegranates for the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work, to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars. He made the stands also and the basins on the stands and the one sea and the 12 oxen underneath it. The pots, the shovels, the forks, and all the equipment for these, Huramabi made of burnished bronze for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them in the clay ground between Sukkoth and Zeradah. Solomon made all these things in great quantities, for the weight of the bronze was not sought. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of God, the golden altar, the tables for the bread of the presence, the lampstands and their lamps of pure gold to burn before the inner sanctuary as prescribed, the flowers of lamps and the tongs of purest gold, the snuffers, basins, dishes for incense and fire pans of pure gold, and the sockets of the temple for the inner doors to the most high holy place and for the doors of the nave of the temple were of gold. Thus all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we know that your word is true and every sentence of it, every jot and tittle, the Lord Jesus said, 
will not pass away. And you have a great message for us tonight. Help give us the ability to understand. Help me to teach. And Father, help us to see the utter sufficiency of Jesus to be our Savior and, and the life consecrated to his glory that is depicted in these sacred vessels. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Many of us possess family heirlooms passed down from one generation to the next, and they tell a story about our families. Uh, For example, a visitor to my house will not likely realize that a fair amount of the artwork was actually painted by my grandmother of scenes from our family history. They might not realize that our living room is literally my mother's living room, transported from her former place to our place with all kinds of little objects in it that mean a lot, at least to my wife and me, and they they tell a story. They won't know that the porcelain elephants on the patio were brought back by my father from his last combat tour in Vietnam. You see, if you know the, in order to know the significance of objects like those, you have to know the family story. But the, the other side, it works the other way as well. If you know what these objects mean, you know at least something about me and my family. Well, the sacred objects of Solomon's temple likewise reveal the character of God's house. And Second Chronicles chapter 4 tells of basins and tables and lampstands. It all may seem rather mundane. Why would a whole chapter of the Bible be given to the making of ordinary objects? Well, the answer is that they were not ordinary, at least not when they were placed into Solomon's temple. And to know the significance of these objects is to learn a great deal about the house in which they were placed. More than this, the sacred vessels speak of the God whose house it is and the way of salvation that is depicted by it. Now, especially for the original readers of Chronicles, remember, this is the generation that's about to leave the Babylonian exile. They're coming back to Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild another temple. They're actually bringing back some of these objects that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar when the city was conquered. And they are learning here from this record of the making of these objects that they are connected with a great history that stretched back to the earliest days of Israel and would extend forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Well, in Second Chronicles 4, the chronicler gives descriptions of the sacred objects that Solomon had made for the house of God. And he notes the bronze altar, the sea of cast metal, 10 golden lampstand, 10 gold covered tables, along with a large number of pots, shovels, tongs, basins, and the like. Now these objects are listed in correspondence with the spaces of the temple to which they belong, namely the outer courtyards and then the holy place inside the temple where the priest served in God's presence. Now the chronicler begins with the altar for burnt offerings that would rest in the outer courtyard of the temple. Verse 1, an altar of bronze, 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 10 cubits high. Now we take a, a cubit at roughly 18 inches. And so it's 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 15 feet high. And undoubtedly there were steps for the priest to ascend in making the offerings, uh, the sacrifices, atop this altar. Now, when we consult Exodus 27, verse 1, we find that Solomon's altar was twice the size 
of the altar made for the Exodus tabernacle, actually more than twice the size. All these objects had originally been made, a, a former f- version of them, for the tabernacle in the wilderness. But now these are larger. It, this one's actually three times taller than the original bronze altar. Matthew Henry comments, now that Israel had become both numerous and more rich, and it was to be hoped they had become more devout, it was expected that there would be a greater abundance of offerings brought to God's altar than had previously been, therefore the altar needed to be bigger. Now the placing of this large offering for burnt offerings, the sacrifices of animals, placing that in the courtyard, and shows that they were to be offered for the sins of the people, large numbers of whom could be present in this outer courtyard, and they would witness the sacrifices made atop this tall altar. And the people would see the smoke of the burnt offerings, and they could be sure that their sins had been forgiven. Well, that's the bronze altar. The next object was also in the courtyard, although it's closer to the temple. Actually, there's a large courtyard for the people and a smaller one for the priest. This is in the courtyard of the priest. And this is the sea of cast metal, verse 2. Now, this was round. We don't know that it was a circle. It could have been more oblong. It was 10 cubits from brim to brim, 5 cubits high, a line of 30 30 cubits measured its circumference, verse 2. Now the purpose of this sea, which is a very large basin, the calculation would show it it was designed to hold 18,000 gallons of water. This was for the priests to wash in before they would enter the temple for their service before the Lord. Its bronze casting was the width of a hand, verse 5. And it was decorated to give the appearance of a flower. would have been a, a large but very beautiful object. Verse 5, its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. And underneath, the bronze sea was decorated with the images of gourds, verse 3. And it rested on 12 bronze bowls. Now, the number of these bulls reflects the tribes, the number of the tribes of Israel, and they're ordered three on each side in the same way that Israel was, was, was the marching order of Israel as they passed through the wilderness during the Exodus. Now, since bulls are animals for domestic service, these bronze bulls seem to reflect the life of service that the priest offered in submission to the Lord. We're told there were 10 smaller bronze basins made. These were for the washing of the sacrificial meat before it was placed on the bronze altar. Now, moving from the courtyard outside into the temple, the chronicle describes in verses 7 and 8, 10 golden lampstands and 10 tables. And they would be arranged five on the north side, five on the south walls of the holy place. Now, these lampstands would replace or at least augment, the scholars aren't exactly sure, if the original single menorah was still there and this, these five augmented it or if these, these ten actually replaced it. But the point was that they would be that lampstand that was to shine God's light within the temple. And the tables were for the showing of the sacramental bread. The English reformer John Mayer comments on the increased number of the lampstands and the tables. He says the number of lights and tables for showbread multiplied in this way under Solomon because he was a figure of Christ, foreshadowing the multiplication of light and provision under the gospel. 
Well, these are the major vessels described in this passage, but we also need to understand their significance. And they're significant both individually and how they work together. The temple, you remember, symbolized the presence of God among his people, and the priestly service reflected God's redeeming grace in the gospel. Verse 19 says the tables were for the bread of the presence. And in fact, every piece of the temple furnishing spoke of the presence of the Lord and the way that the people would come to him. Moreover, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 tells us that the Old Testament administration, and that particularly has with respect to the temple and its rituals and its furnishings, it was all a shadow of the good things to come. Now a shadow is cast backwards by the light. And likewise, the coming of Christ, cast, he cast his shadow back into the old covenant. His saving work is reflected by these furnishings and in the gospel that would come. Well, let's start our tour again back in the courtyards. There's two courtyards, one for the people, another for the priests. And the outer courtyard depicts the sinner coming into the presence of a holy God. It's very significant that in Chronicles, in the book of Kings, in the book of Exodus, all three of them, the first of these, of these vessels, these furnishings that were described, was the bronze altar. It comes first. Now the message is that we must first deal with the guilt of our sins before we may approach the holy God. Israel's Lord, the only true God, is a holy God. He cannot abide the presence of sin or of sinners. So there must be a sacrifice of atonement for the guilt of our sins before we may enter the Lord's presence. You see, this is the system of religion. This is the way of salvation depicted by the organization of the temple. Now, moreover, the daily sacrifices that would be made on this bronze altar would serve as a constant reminder to Israel that what they really needed was a true atonement for sins. And we're told in Hebrews 10 that people actually realize that a human being's sins could not be atoned for by the sacrifice of a bull or a goat. Rather, it was a reminder that we needed the true and final atonement who had not yet come. Hebrews 10.3 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, while the bronze altar and its sacrifices pointed out our need for an atoning sacrifice, it also made the point that nothing else would suffice. The temple courtyard, for instance, did not have a place where sinners could bring money to pay God for their acceptance. There there was no table in the outer courtyard for you to bring valuable gifts that would assuage his anger against your sin. There was no... uh, gymnasium for you to perform good works to balance the scale against your transgressions no the only thing in the in the outer courtyard is the bronze altar for the sacrifice of atoning sins now that is because as hebrews 9:22 says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin the way the only way into god's holy presence was through the blood, and it's the blood of the true sacrifice who would atone for our sins. Jesus would say, I am the way. He was speaking of his death on the cross. No one comes to the Father except through me. John fourteen six. 
Well, the true and long-awaited atonement came in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 says that God's son was incarnate as a true human being because he came to save human beings. He came to make propitiation for the sins of the people, Hebrews 2, 17. And this is why when the last prophet of the Old Testament era, John the Baptist, his ministry actually belongs to the Old Testament on the very brink of the new. And he sees Jesus of Nazareth walking beside the Jordan River. And what does he say? Summing up the whole message of Solomon's temple, the whole message of the Old Testament. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now the role of Christ's atoning death symbolized by this bronze altar is seen, I think, in the doctrinal unfolding of the book of Romans. I want to particularly highlight Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, because everything prior to those verses is bad news. Paul begins his, his doctrine in the book of Romans by talking about the problem of sin and our great condemnation for sin. He, he begins, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. And Romans 3, 23 wraps up by saying there's nothing you can do about your sin problem for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is nothing we can do, make, offer, perform because of our sin. That was the message of the bronze altar in the temple courtyard. We are guilty of sins. There's no work we can do. There's no money we can pay. There's no quest we can fulfill to present ourselves acceptably in God's presence. And then comes the wonderful statement of Romans 3, 24 to 25, that sinners are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received through faith. Everything prior to those verses is bad news. Everything after those verses is good news. It is what happens in these two verses that allows sinners to come justified into God's holy presence that we would be blessed by him. And it speaks of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. A propitiation is a sacrifice to turn aside or to satisfy the wrath of the holy God. Jesus did that by dying on the cross to be received through faith. Solomon's bronze altar looked forward to that event, to Christ's atoning death as a sacrifice that would really, truly, forever take away God's wrath from his people, that they might enter into the blessing of his holy presence. Well, the temple sacrifices of bulls and goats, insufficient in themselves, they did point forward to the true sacrifice of Christ. And when the people would bring their bulls, large animals were sacrificed on this big altar. Goats, sheep, and bulls, oxen. And when they were bringing it, they were not actually atoning for their own sins. What they were doing was they were professing faith in what it represented. It's a major mistake to think that the people in these Old Testament sacrifices, that they were performing a work unto God by which they would be justified. No, they were professing faith in the gift that God would give them in his son, the Lord Jesus. Solomon prayed this way. He made it very clear that the point of this was to provide an atonement, looking forward to the great atonement, 
so that the people would be forgiven. When he later prayed at the dedication, we'll see this in chapter 6, when he dedicates the temple and his altar, he mentions the forgiveness of sin. If they sin against you, O Lord, Solomon prays, for there is no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. The bronze altar and the uh, courtyard outside the temple show that we can only enter into God's saving blessing through the blood of Jesus Christ received through faith. Now, moving closer, we get to the courtyard of the priests. And there we see this great bronze sea. It's called a sea because it's such a large body of water. And it was for, verse 6 says, this was for the priests to wash in. Exodus 30, verse 20 says that the priests were required to wash with water before entering the temple so that they may not die. Exodus 30, verse 20. And so this bronze sea made provision for the priests to obey that command, that they would wash themselves before they entered into the temple. Well, we're reminded by the bronze sea that not only must our sins be forgiven, but we ourselves must be cleansed as we enter into God's service. Matthew Henry says, our great gospel duty is to cleanse ourselves by true repentance from all the pollutions of the flesh and the corruption that is in the world. Our hearts must be sanctified or we cannot sanctify the name of God. Now the word for the cleansing of the persons is expiation. It's also a part of what Christ did. Propitiation is the turning aside of God's wrath. It's the work of Christ on the cross. But part of that cross work was the expiation. He actually cleanses us. What good news that is. It says that when you believe in the Lord Jesus, as the Holy Spirit applies his atoning blood spiritually to your inward person, you become clean. This is what expiation is, the Holy Spirit cleansing us inwardly of the corrupting presence of sin. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9.14 makes an analogy between the way the priestly rituals with the blood, they would sprinkle the body and the body would be ritually clean. And then he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 9, 14. We need our inward consciences to be cleansed from the corruption of sin. And the Holy Spirit takes the spiritual value of Christ's atoning death and he expiates sin, cleansing us that we might serve God. Now together, the bronze sea and the the bronze altar and then the, the metal cast sea can be thought of as representing justification and sanctification. We must be forgiven the guilt of our sins. We must be cleansed from its presence in our lives. Well, the chronicler describes the further vessels by taking us now inside the holy place. We've seen what happens in the courtyard in order that we could enter, that the priest could enter the temple. But now let's look at the vessels that are actually in the temple in what is called the holy place. That's the larger room where the the Levitical priests serve. Verses 7 and 8 tell us, And he made ten golden lampstands as prescribed and set them in the temple, five on the south side and five on the north. 
He also made ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the south side and five on the north. Now, here's the question I'd like to ask. Of, of all the things that you could put into a temple, why these things? Imagine you're building a temple for your deity. What are you going to put in it? Well, what the pagans would do is they'd put a statue of the god there because they believed that he was contained there or she was contained there. And there were all kinds of, in many cases, unholy things. But, but why these things? You're going to put objects in the temple. You're going to put lampstands and tables. Why is that? Well, the answer is that the lampstands and the table for the tables for the showbread revealed that ours is a religion of salvation by grace, by grace alone. You see, God is the one. His people come before them. That they, we offer ourselves to him, and then he provides us blessings. God provides us the grace and the blessings needed for the spiritual life of his people. All God asks is that we bring ourselves in sincerity and faith. And when we come through the atoning ministry of Jesus Christ, God offers us the light and the life that are symbolized by these furnishings. Well, the original tabernacle had a single golden lampstand, the menorah, And it had six golden branches extending from a central shaft. It was all decorated with flowers and cups like almond blossoms, Exodus 25, 33. And shining with light, the lampstand was to resemble the tree of life from the Garden of Eden. And these golden lamps bathed the temple so that its beauty could be seen. Well, it's not hard to understand the symbolism of the golden lampstands. The Bible frequently describes God with the imagery of light. Psalm 21.7 says, or 27.1 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And of course, this speaks of his revealed word. He makes known his truth to his people. Psalm 36.9 says, in your light we see light. Well, like the temple with its beautiful shining lampstands, when we come into God's presence through faith, In Jesus Christ, we are enlightened by the word of God with the help of the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And in this way, Solomon's lampstands pointed forward to the coming of Jesus. Remember how Isaiah foretold him, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, verse 12. Now, along with the ten lampstands, Solomon made ten tables that were covered in gold, verse 19 says, for the bread of the presence. Now, this bread, called the showbread, the the priests would bake bread every day and they would arrange it on tables to be shown. This represented God's provision of life for his people. Bread is the most basic staple to provide for the necessity of life. And and his life-giving provision is symbolized. Martin Selman points out that these furnishings illustrated the blessing of God's presence among his people. He says this, Even in times of darkness and poverty, God remained the source of light and food for his people. We're not surprised that Jesus identified this image with his own person and work. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me 
shall never thirst. In John 6, 35, he was talking about the hunger of the soul, the hunger and thirst for eternal life. I think it's interesting that the New Testament church today parallels the arrangement of Solomon's temple. What, what are the furnishings in our church? Well, mainly it's a pulpit and a communion table. That's what we see in the classic Reformed church, like the lampstands of old. The pulpit upholds a, a Bible, an open Bible. It's the lampstand of the church as the word of God is read and preached. His light is going forth. And then the, the people gather around the Lord's table to commune with our ascended Savior. Like bread for our souls, the Lord's Supper brings us into his spiritual presence Special presence reminds us of Jesus' sacrificial death from which we receive life and the blessing of his grace. Now the only things really new from Solomon's temple in terms of the actual furniture is the pews. And that's because the congregation is no longer outside. The congregation has been brought inside. Now why is that? Because they have union with Christ and now they themselves are priests. And Peter says that Christians are now a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You might point out that the baptismal font is brought inside. No longer is the washing of ourselves outside, but the sacrament is given to the people of God inside the church. And yet the New Testament analogy to Solomon's temple really isn't the church building and its furniture. Do you realize that the New Testament analogy to Solomon's temple and its furnishings is you? It's the Christian, him or herself. Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, 1 Peter 2, 5. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians three sixteen, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. You see, with that in mind, Solomon's temple, these temple vessels, depict everything that we need to flourish spiritually in the presence of God's grace. And that means that as the golden lampstands would shine forth light in the temple of old, we need each of us the light of God's word as we read it, as it's preached. The ministry of the word of God in our life is essential for our spiritual flourishing. The Christian who can say, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, that's a believer who's able to walk in a way that pleases God and enjoys the warmth of his love. And likewise, the one who feeds on Christ, as it were, through faith, feeding on his saving blessing, will know the satisfaction of the life that he gives. And then, lest we forget, I need to point out that the chronicler adds the golden altar. He mentions that in verse 19. You say, what's the golden altar? It's the one thing he didn't mention earlier. It's the altar outside the most holy place for the incense that would be burned up. Likewise, he doesn't want us to forget the role of prayer in the life of a believer the well-furnished soul will be lit by the lamp of God's word, will be feeding on Christ with the life that he gives, and then we'll be unburdening our hearts in prayer at the throne of grace, worshiping him, communing with him, and making requests for the care of our Father's love. 
Well, as we would expect of a building like Solomon's temple, the details of this account are rich with valuable lessons to believers when it comes to the worship of God. I'm going to close with three lessons for us about worship seen in this chapter. And the first is this. We must note how carefully Solomon prepared and arranged everything in obedience to the commandments of God's word. Verse 7 says he made the lampstands as prescribed. It, he wasn't, Solomon was not self-actualizing as he made the vessels. It was all according to the careful instructions of God's word. First Chronicles 28, 19, or 9 to 19 relates how David actually gave him precise plans for all of this, for the temple itself and all these, uh, these holy vessels. David says that it was made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord all the work to be according to the plan. 1 Chronicles 28:19 And Solomon fulfilled his charge as temple builder by carefully observing those plans and instructions. Now my friends, we likewise must worship God only in accordance to his word. And that would exclude every form of element or element of worship that is not set forth clearly in Scripture. Listen to how the Westminster Confession explains it. It says the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and is so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan. And dare I say, it's sometimes hard to tell those two apart or under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. We are to worship, as Solomon did here, according to the teaching of God's Word. Now, ours is a generation of many worship innovations, and and, and Christians wonder, why can't we worship God in a way that seems good to us? Why not according to our ideas? Why not to reflect our styles? Well, the answer is that worship is designed for God's praise and God's glory and must therefore be according to God's word. Oh, people say, but won't strictly biblical worship centered on prayer, the sacraments, the preaching of the word, won't that lack variety and interest? Won't it get boring? Well, anyone who has long practiced simple biblical worship can tell you of its beauty and power. We can also know the richness of God's ways by looking at Solomon's temple. We noted in our study of chapter 3 that everything's constructed to, to, remember, to resemble a return to the Garden of Eden. And we have here, we have details of gourds and flowers and lily-shaped vessels. And the light is shining and there's this a rich aroma of the baked bread together with the incense. It's rich. It's beautiful. It's blessed. The whole creation motif, the the garden motif says, no, to enter God's presence through the worship he has prescribed is to enter a very paradise of his blessing. No one would say, this just seems so dull. Far from it. Note further the riches that were brought into Solomon's temple. This is Chapter 5, verse 1, the last verse of this passage. Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels in the treasures of the house of God. Now, that hoard represented the spoils of David's conquests in battle. 
It was the treasury of, of the gold and silver and all the valuable objects that David had, had won in his military victories. But you see, the spoils of Christ are the souls of men and women who are brought to faith through the preaching of the gospel and whose presence in the church is of greater value than all of David's silver and gold. Simple biblical worship centered on Christ through prayers, preaching, and the sacraments not only contains the beautiful richness or, 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 or reflects the beautiful richness of God's own character, but it provides, as God has designed it to do, the richest treasure in the saving conquest of the gospel. You have been born again, Peter said, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed by the living and abiding word of God. Simple biblical worship saves and brings the treasure of Christ's people into his house. Well, first we've seen Solomon's careful obedience to God's word. I want to point out as well the careful attention given by the chronicler to the bronze items versus the gold items. You may have been wondering as I was reading the chapter, is there something going on that some of these are made of bronze, everything, other things are made of gold? And the answer is that there is. Namely, that the vessels outside the temple in the courtyard were made of bronze, including the, the great altar and the cast metal sea, verse 1. But the vessels inside the temple were all made of pure gold. You see, even the smallest items in the holy place were made of gold. And he lists them, the flowers, the lamps, the tongs of purest gold, the snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, the fire pans of pure gold, the sockets of the temple, along with the inner doors to the most holy place and the doors of the nave of the temple, everything inside. You see, when you're in the presence of God, it's pure gold and you see this represents the holy purity of saving faith Matthew Henry observes the nearer we come to God the purer we must be and the purer we will be the message is that there's nothing that is devoted to God least of all ourselves which will not be transformed by his presence into value and beauty Outside, the more worldly bronze may suffice. But in God's presence, we must come with the faith that Peter described as more precious than gold. 1 Peter 1.7, and which will reflect back to God the glory of his grace. Now lastly, if Solomon's obedience reflects the biblical arrangement of worship... And if all the golden objects show the purity of faith that God's worship deserves, lastly, let's notice the skilled workmanship. This the skilled workmanship that is devoted to these sacred vessels, and it shows that the, the commitment that Christians should make to give to God and to offer to God our very best. Look at verses 11 to 16. We find that Hiram's master craftsman 
this specially talented person that he had brought in at great expense, and he made even the most incidental objects, the pots, shovels, and basins, along with the latticework for the pillars, the 400 decorative pomegranates for the capitals. Even the stands, pots, shovels, and forks were made by the single most gifted person in the world who could do them at that time. Now, here's the point. If Solomon committed the very best to the least of the sacred vessels... Well, surely Christians should give him our whole hearts, the very, our very best as we sing to him. Yes, our, our very best attention in the hearing of sermons. We should give to him wholeheartedly in our tithes and offerings. We should commit to our devotion to him in prayer. We need to pray for God's help in doing those things. But if that's what Hiram Abi was assigned to do for making tongs and sockets, oh, we should labor we should even develop ability for sermon hearing and for praying we should cultivate as it were the worship arts of the christian people that we could give to this god the very best oh he so deserves it the golden beauty of solomon's temple reveals the value placed on the presence and the glory of God. And you see, our wholehearted commitment to worship should do the same. It should be a way of saying how great you are, our God. Well, when Jesus came to Jerusalem, he said, someone greater than Solomon is here. Matthew twelve forty two, and in the clearer light and the more life-giving bread that Jesus gives in the gospel, we honor him with a faith that esteems him most beautiful and best. And we can glorify him in our hearts if we will in our hearts reflect the words of worship that Michael Perry wrote in his hymn. We'll sing it in a middle, in a minute. These words, they should reflect our attitude, our devotion and worship. Oh, God beyond all praising, we worship you today and sing the love amazing that songs cannot repay. For we can only wonder at every gift you send, at blessings without number, at mercies without end. We lift our hearts before you. We wait upon your word. We honor and adore you, our great and mighty God. My Father, how far we fall short of this, but yet we're reminded that the temple was the place where you give to us. And our giving to you is merely the work of your grace in our lives. So I pray, Father, that we would learn and believe the gospel set forth in these sacred vessels. That you have made an atoning sacrifice for sinners. Oh, what good news that is for us, Lord. Through faith in Jesus, we're forgiven of our sins. And then, Lord, we pray that we would experience the reality of all that golden purity inside the temple. As we spend time with you, Lord, would you start transforming us? And with that transformation of our faith, more precious than gold, would it lead then to the kind of consecration that Solomon idealized in the making of that holy house? Well, Father, in Christ, we now are your temple. May we give you praise suitable to your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.